Welcome back to the Gods the Ghost Volleyball Podcast and your host, Scott Bemke. This podcast features part two of our interview with 28-time Beach Open winner, 1972 Manhattan Beach Open champion, and longtime AVP tournament director, Matt Gage. Let's get started with part two. All right. So you played with a number of legendary players and characters throughout your career. I'm going to mention a few of these classic players one at a time and it'd be interesting to kind of hear your take on that player if there's a particular story about them that resonates with you or a particular skill about them that you think made them you know such a special player you know whatever you know comes to mind so let's start out first with uh, Ron Ado next Lang well Ron Ron was Awesome. Um, I sent an email recently. I even told him, I said, you were awesome. But he was. And, um, you know, he had a real air about him. He, he had a lot of, he had an air of self-confidence. And he really had a bit of an air of cockiness about him. There's a, there's a famous or pretty famous picture of him between serves. He's getting ready. He's, he's waiting so, to serve. And he's spinning the ball on his finger. Like, Come on, what's going on? Here I am. I'm ready to play. And but, but you know, a little, you know, you might say a little self-assured, a little cocky. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the way Ron was. He, you know, he really had a lot of self-confidence. I think. And Ron was the the Swiss Army knife of, of beach volleyball in his time. I think you know he could do absolutely everything: pass, set, hit, dig like a machine, and uh, he had great shots. He just had a great all-around game. And not only that, he was a terrific server. There just wasn't anything he wasn't really skillful at. And uh, you got to realize that in the middle to earlier 60s, he dominated with Selznick. And then he played with Von Hagen in the later 60s. He dominated with Von Hagen. And I've asked both Von Hagen you know, who was obviously one of the greatest of all time. And I've asked Selznick, who was, most people think, the best of his time. And I've asked them both, I said, who do you think was the best player you either played with or against? And both of them said Ron Lang. So I, I, I don't think Ron quite gets his due. People know he's a great player. Most people know he's an unbelievable legend. But I don't think he, to this day, gets, gets his due. He was pretty unbelievable. So I've heard, and that is interesting that you mentioned that because Von Hagen uh, just raved about Lang and said he had the best line shot uh, he'd ever seen. He had the best cut shot 
that he had ever seen and that he was one of the best setters that he had ever played with. And that when it came to playing defense, there would be times that he would think of, there's no way someone's going to dig that ball and Lang would have like stuck an arm out or, or dug his knees into the sand and dug that ball overhand like perfect. And the next thing you know, you know Ron Von Hagen said he'd be running and getting his hands underneath that ball to set him and he'd put it away. You know, there's a, uh, apparently one year, I don't know, it might have been 66 or 67, the, one of the years that Von Hagen and Lang played together. Apparently, not only did they never lose a, a game, they never even lost a game in any tournament. They, they won every tournament, and they never lost a game, but they never lost a practice game the whole summer. That's how good they were. I think I, I read mean, I mean, that's, and that's concentration. That's focus. If you're playing that well all that time and you don't let down, that's, that's, that's something else. I think I remember reading an article in Volleyball or Volleyball Monthly back in the 80s or 90s when they were talking about the greatest teams ever. And whomever the author was made a comment that uh, Von Hagen played left, Lang played right, and everyone else played dead. <laughs> 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 and I thought that was pretty good, and I, I told that to Lang, and of course he laughed that evil laugh of his and said, "I had never heard that before." But yeah, uh, that was a he could said that. Yeah, that's it was pretty true. Now, uh, Ron Von Hagen, I uh, I'd love to hear your take on him as uh, as a player and what made him special, or any interesting stories you can recall either watching or playing with him, Matt. You know. Ron always reminds me, or I should say Karch, always reminds me of Von Hagen. I think they both play the game very, very, very similarly. Ron was, Ron had, to, to, the game was everything to Ron. He, to, winning was, was everything to him. I mean, not so much that he would compromise his integrity or anything like that, but he wanted to win and it was very important to him. He, he really wanted to be the best. And uh, he would play hard, but as a player, he he was a great hitter. Uh, not so much a straight down hitter, but he had range. You know, he get a two, three, four foot back set, and he could go up and hit it really hard and place it. He was as good, well, maybe the best player I've ever seen for hitting the ball off the net. He could he could just deliver. Very impressive. He didn't have super deceptive shots, but they were pretty effective. He had, I mean, he used, back in those days, some of the players used what you call the knuckle dinks or the knuckle deep dinks. He, he did that, and, but he was pretty deceptive. He'd show the knuckle, people would come in thinking it was a short dink, and he'd, he'd go deep. So he, he was pretty effective with that. Absolutely a unbelievable setter. He would get, get the ball. When somebody passed the ball, he would move as quick as anybody to get underneath the ball, bend his knees, really deep and, and put the ball right on the net. Just a fantastic setter. You would get more right-on sets with Ron than you'd get with anybody. He was that good a setter. Good passer. And, uh, you know, he, he just, he believed the way he played the game was you just didn't give up any points. That was his whole philosophy. And he believed that if you're in good enough shape and you don't give up any points, you're going to play better than the other team and you're going to outlast them and you're going to win the matches. And that's exactly what he did. And he, you know, he, a great partner. I, he, as good as he is, as good as he was, 
he never, ever, ever, ever got mad at his partner. He always said, my fault. <laughs> and he kept the game very simple. Basically, when you're when you're getting ready to play the, the, the uh, next rally, you're receiving the serve. He would go, one, two, three. This ball goes down. It's really simple stuff. It was like a mantra. That's all it was. It was a mantra to get you thinking the right way. And uh, it worked. It was, it was, it was really fantastic. And then your favorite partner, Jim Mingus. Well, Mingus was a little bit like Lang in that he had a great all-around game. He had really good ball control. He had fantastic shots. Played great defense. Um, he probably had the best sky ball of anybody on the beach, and he used it quite often. It was pretty darn effective back in those days. Um, but the thing I think that, you know, besides great ball control, but the thing that he was really, really a good defensive player. And he dug a lot of balls. And nobody, but nobody, dug the ball with their hands, like above, you know, back near your face, in front of your face. He would, he would get in a little tighter, and he would dig the ball with his hands all the time. And when you dig the ball with your hands like that, usually they don't come up with much spin, so it's easier for your partner to set you on, on the uh, conversion. And uh, the other thing was, obviously, when you're doing it with your hands, you keep the ball in front of you, so that's easy to set the ball too. So he would score a lot of points off digs. I remember uh, 1981, I was out of the tournament, I'm watching the finals, and I'm watching, I think, I'm not quite sure who he played in the finals, but I do remember I'm watching him, he's playing with Stoklos, and I just remember him just digging a ton of balls. I mean, they just couldn't seem to get the ball by him. And a lot of them, most of them, were with his hands. And like I said, not too many people dug the ball with their hands. It was extremely effective. He was pretty amazing. Yeah, he mentioned that when someone's attacking the ball, that he was moving in with his hands up and he was attacking the ball as it was coming at him. And I thought that was kind of interesting to hear yeah. how he that. I mean, it's it's not easy to, to dig balls like overhand like that when they're coming at your face at that kind of speed on an open net. But um, he, was, he walked right in He was in phenomenal. It. He was phenomenal at that. And I would ask him later, I mean, I would say, you know, you take a lot of balls... What do you, why do you think you can dig so many balls? He goes, I don't know. I just always had a good feel for where to be. <laughs> oh, really? That's it? That's the secret? You just always had a good feel? You kidding me? <laughs> yeah, just like Von Hagen, keeping it real simple. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. There was some other, you know, Marlowe had a brief spell there on the beach when he was a pretty good player and of course we all know and remember and love him from his uh, announcing days you know it's because of him that I hearing him talk about stories about Mike Storm and Norman that you know really got me into the more so the historical guys of the sport so um, but from my, my understanding he was quite a player too so what, what do you recall about his playing days? Marlowe was a, you know the kind of player that when you first saw him you probably would underestimate him. He, 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 he didn't have, like, your classic volleyball build. Uh, I'm not putting him down, because I like Chris, and I've always got along well with him, but he, he walked a little, little, he had a little waddle on his walk. Uh, but he was a hell of an athlete. I mean, a really good athlete. Yeah, I think I mentioned this once when we were talking before, but he was on the city championship, uh, Los Angeles City Championship basketball team, a starting guard. And he was a, he was a really good basketball player, and he, he played at San Diego State. 
a really good athlete. So, he, you know, he wasn't a great leaper, good jumper, but not, you know, no more than anybody else. Yeah, he could hit the ball pretty well, but not great. Um, he dug the ball darn well. He dug a lot of balls. He, dug, he, had, he really could dig the ball, had the good shots. And, you know, I think more than anything else with uh, Chris, he he just seemed to get it. He, I think he was one of those people that picked things up pretty quickly and kind of conceptually knew what to do, when to do it, how to do it. I think he was just a, a real quick study on how to play the game, and he was he played it really smart. He had, I think he had a, a good inner confidence, so I, he wasn't a person that I think was ever uh, had, had self-doubt, and it all worked together really well. Also a very good co-ed player, so, and to be a co-ed player, you have to have really good feet. You have to move around the court like a gazelle, and like I said, at first glance, you wouldn't think that would be him, but he could do it, and he was also a hell of a server. So he, he, he had a good game. He had a real good game. When you talk about the co-ed, was that the time when the girl uh, usually would go stand up at the right front of the net and the guy would pretty much cover the whole court and pass? Well, depending on which side you played, I played the right side, so the girl would play on the line on the left side. She would play just inside the line. So the guy would cover the, basically the whole court. He would, he would run from side to side and cover the serves coming from the other team. You had to be pretty quick on your feet to cover that much ground. And uh, Chris Chris won some co-ed tournaments. He was, he was a hell of a co-ed player. I'll tell, you, I'll, I'll tell you a story I don't like too much, but I was playing him at uh, the Marine Co-ed, which was the big co-ed tournament of the year. Got ahead of him. He's playing with Kathy Gregory, which is you know maybe as good as you're going to get as far as a partner. But I'm ahead of him 11-1. 11-1. <laughs> he came back and beat me. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that's not something I like to remember, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on, the, on that secret. Yeah, probably it sounds like uh, Karch and Kent's lost the Hovland and Dodd and Phoenix there, like one of those that you, you, you can never get out of your mind. I'll bet I can tell you something about that one you've never heard, or maybe not ever heard. You know who Brantley is? Yeah, Bradley he was, was an Bradley, official. I always uh, wonder, was he related to Jim and Greg to or to uh, yeah, they're cousins. John they're cousins. and, and uh, Greg? They're, yeah, they're cousins. So so Brant was refing, and uh, he, after the event, Karch and Brant and a few other people are walking back to the hotel from the uh, from the event site, and Karch has got his trophy in his right hand. And I, I don't think Karch will mind me telling this story. Um Anyway, so Brent told me the story. He said, everything's going good, and they're talking, and they're, everything's calm, and they're just having a nice, leisurely talk. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Cart stops, takes his trophy, and throws it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that net in Cape Cod. He uh, he's, would surprise us from time to time with that kind of behavior, I guess. Well, you know, he... It almost never happened with Karch. He was pretty much, for the most part, and, and for almost always, a, a terrific gentleman. I think there were a couple times when <laughs> he let the game get to him and his frustration get to him. And the computer, even the computer was human from time to time. Yeah, I guess so. He's a, he was one of the easier players ever to work with on that tour, I'll tell you that. He was a, he never complained about anything. Keeping in line with uh, some of the other 
players from your era, Gary Hooper seems to be a guy that I would have, if there was a time machine, I would have liked to have gone back and, and watched him play and then hung out with him that evening. Um, I don't know if I would have lived, but it seems like it, he right. sure had a lot of fun. Uh, Gary, Gary, what about Gary him? Hooper, he is one of a kind. One of a kind. Nice guy, and uh, boy, he, he liked to have fun. He, uh, he you know, there, there was no secrets with Gary. And, and, and believe me, don't tell your secrets to Gary, because he had no secrets of other people's secrets. <laughs> he was I mean, public he was, knowledge he, once it got no, there. He, he just loved to, he just loved to talk about everything. He would tell you everything about his, <laughs> everything about his private life, his sex life, everything. I mean, he was, he was a character. And he'd tell you, I'm not kidding you, he'd tell you about other people too. He was just, he loved to talk about stuff like that. And he, and he, <laughs> he, he really, when Obradovich and Hooper were a team, the team, you know, you most remember those guys playing together, but those guys, they used to be like a comedy act or, or at least an entertainment act on court. They were just unbelievable in the 80s. People would go and just watch them just, just for the entertainment value. They would, they would argue with each other on the court. They would argue with the ref. OB was always doing something. He was just a way out there. But Hooper, you know, he always had an unbelievably good-looking girlfriend. And you'd hear stories about him at night uh, partying and having a good time and uh, doing some of the things I didn't do. But <laughs> he was a character. And, and a, you know, just a, just a guy who was, a, who was living life to the, you know, more than... The rest of us, for the most part. And then he could still get up and play the next day. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> he was a hell, you know, he was a heck of a defensive player, really was. I, I remember uh, Bill Imwally and I played against him in 1976 down in San Diego. And they were serving Bill. And Bill just kept hitting it towards Hooper. And Hooper kept digging him. And they weren't easy digs, but he just kept digging one after another. The game probably lasted 20 minutes, and I got off the court, and I just went, I'm just thinking to myself, what just happened out there? Because, you know, I've never really been in a game where somebody dug that many balls and just, you know, they just kind of walked all over you. And that's kind of what happened. He, he was a heck of a digger. He could really play defense. I saw a picture recently. I think Dane Selznick had posted it uh, of Dane hitting, and Hooper kind of dug in in his catcher, baseball catcher's crouch, and he had his arms up, and he was about to, you know, overhand dig. I heard, uh, well, what was his nickname? Scoop? He could, uh, yeah, he could really put some balls up, uh, get a lot of balls up in the air. And I heard, in a sense, he was kind of like Mingus in that he might not have had the hardest heat on the beach, but he could always find the open sand, like an uncanny knack for it. Is that a pretty fair assessment? Not really. He was actually a really hard hitter. Oh, okay. He, he, he had those he monkey be, arms, right? He had long arms. He wasn't. He was probably only six foot. He jumped. He jumped well, and he had kind of a over the top arm swing. And he just he really hit it hard. Actually, Ob and Obradovich and Hooper together were two very hard hitters. And when they were on their game, you didn't pick up too many balls because they hit the ball so hard. They were they really they really could hit the ball hard and and. You know, they weren't on as often as maybe some of the, you know, 
some other top teams. Sure. When they were on, they were really hard to beat. They could really, really be hard to dig. They were, they were a tough team when they were on. Yeah, they were on that one year, and they, they won Manhattan together, correct? Don't think so. No. They won... They won. Uh, they won um, the world championship at Redondo one year. Okay. Maybe that's what you're thinking about. Maybe that's the one. But yeah, I heard that they, uh, you know, Ob could say the most obscene, uh, derogatory comments to Hooper, and it was didn't even phase the guy. It was like nothing to him. They were like they were like an old married couple. They were they they just really could get into it on the court with each other. You just didn't usually see teammates getting into it like they did with each other and right. uh, you know and, and, and I think sometimes it really bothered the game but sometimes maybe it didn't uh, they weren't they weren't two real characters playing together but they boy, they were buddies you know and when the, once the term was off over there they were they were off uh, at the parties speaking of OB uh, he's you know widely regarded as one of the heaviest hitters that played the game and I know he certainly didn't lack for confidence what uh what do you call about watching him play you know very good player yeah you're right he hit the ball really well hit the ball really well off the net one of the better hitters off the net for sure um not a not a really good passer for that I mean wasn't a bad passer but he wasn't a precise passer he You'd serve, you'd serve OB. If you're going to serve OB, you're going to serve him because his passing wasn't the strongest part of his game. He was actually a good setter, had nice hands, set the ball nice and clean. Good setter. Didn't, didn't have a lot of shots, although he could, he could move it around a little bit. He could, he could move his hits around pretty well. But he hit the ball so sharply, that, and, and he hit it sharply from off the net, that he didn't really need a lot of uh, you know, off-speed stuff. Right. But he was sometimes he wasn't fun to play because he could get a little ornery out there. And then uh, the last player I'd like to hear about is uh, the wordsmith John Lee's brother, Greg Lee. Greg, another great athlete. This is, this is you know, probably one of the best athletes that's played the game. He was two-time City Player of the Year in basketball, and that's pretty unheard of. That's how good he was. And he, again, he's, he's a little bit like Marlowe, I think, in that he had a lot of self-confidence. I think he, he picks things up really quick. You know, I think he just I think he just conceptualizes and, and figures out everything very quick. I'm sure he got good at the game very fast. Um, he was big for he was big for his time. He was like six four, maybe six four and a half. Could hit the ball hard. It didn't hit a didn't hit particularly down, but he hit a very hard flat ball that kind of caught you kind of high in the chest it just kind of you couldn't control it it ricochet and uh, had really good ball control didn't make a lot, any mistakes really he passed really well set really well could hit the ball from off the deck because he had a nice approach stayed behind the ball he, I don't think he was a wasn't a bad defensive player but wasn't a particularly strong defensive player but you know he was so good at the rest of the game he didn't have to be Jim and Jim and him when they played together in uh, 75 76 were really, really a good team. Uh, 13 and all, right? Well, 75 they were, yeah. And they were they were tough. I mean, they they were a, a really good combo. Um, both of them had great ball control, and uh, they both had a lot of confidence together. And Greg, 
Greg, the funny thing about Greg was, no matter who he played with, and even, you know, he was at UCLA. And I, he was on the team that won 88 straight games for UCLA basketball. And uh, he was a starting point guard. Well, he always, whenever you heard him interviewed or whenever you talked to him, he always would laud whoever he was playing with. I mean, when you when he he get interviewed at UCLA, he would always laud Bill Walton, who was the center on the team. And then when he was playing with Greg, he would always speak really highly about Greg. That's what that's what he would talk about. Later, he, he played with Jay Hanseth, and Jay Hanseth was the best blocker on the beach, according to uh, Greg. I mean, he had his he had his partners. You know, playing the best they could possibly play. They had total confidence because he he had total confidence in them, and he really built them up. Not that not that Jim needed needed any building up, but I mean, he just had he just he was smart enough to know that hey, it's I know I'm good. I don't have to pat myself in the back. I want my partner to play good. Right. And he was also the smartest guy in the room, and he knew it. He was he and his brother were both very smart. They, but their mom and dad were. Teachers, they both were real smart, and uh, I mean, they didn't look, they didn't try and act like it, but you just knew they were really smart guys. Yeah, the the times that I've had the pleasure of talking with John Lee, he um, he always amazes me, and uh, like the his the articles that he's written, like the one he wrote about you, like the the gauge is uh, still on full or what have you. I mean, his writing style is just phenomenal. So I can only imagine what Greg must have been like. Well, yeah, Greg, Greg, I think, had a 4.0 at uh, UCLA. It was probably the same grade point he had in high school. He's, a, he's Like I said, he's any room he's in, he's probably the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, and most likely the best athlete, too. That's impressive. <laughs> Be that yeah. good at basketball and volleyball and probably whatever else he wanted to play had he dedicated himself to it. Yep, for sure. All right, so this is always one of my favorite questions coming up here. I mean, from your playing career in the 70s through the early 80s and then serving as the EVP tournament director for, what was it, like almost three decades, um, if not more, who would be the five most impressive hitters uh, you've ever seen, all eras, Matt? And if you have to go above five, that's that's fine, but I'd be curious to hear who would get in that conversation. I'm going to start with Shamal. Shamalis was, uh, you know, he didn't have a super long career, and I don't think he was probably the best hitter for for a long time. But when he was at his best, he was, I think, the best hitter. He he could really hit it. He just he, he, he was a big, pretty big guy. He was probably six three and a half, six four. Went to UCLA with Jimmy and uh, Greg, and uh, you give him a good set, and he'd go up, and he didn't seem like he was really doing that much, but that. He would just—he would almost just straighten his arm, snap his wrist, and the ball would just come off that wrist so fast, go straight down, and bounce super high. It was very similar to, to, to Bergman. Shamalis was very s- similar in that people, when when uh, Shamalis got a serve or when he had a chance to hit, people were just couldn't wait to see what was going to happen because he hit the ball so hard and bounced the ball so high. He was very impressive, and I think anybody that was. They came from that area. Would put would put him on their list, if not the very top of their of, the, of their list. Oh, I'm sorry. What did you say? Yeah, that's in a pretty impressive group there. Yeah, 
Well, and then uh, moving on, Bergman. I, already, I think I already talked a, a bit about Bergman and how he hit the ball and you know how he was a contortionist and how he went up and put every ounce of his energy into every time he went up and hit the ball. He was just... I, I don't never see anybody put as much energy into a hit as he did, and he just blasted the ball. And like I talked about with Shamal's people anticipate every time he hit the ball. Rundle, big jumper, great arm swing, great, great, uh, great wrist. Could snap the ball straight down. You give him a good set, and the ball went straight down. You put him back, and he could hit it really hard. He was a really good hitter. Like I said, great leaper. Somebody that you know, I don't hear brought up too much as one of the great hitters of all time is Randy Stoklos. I, I literally, literally, all the times I played against Randy or watched him play as a tournament director, I never saw him get served. Not once did I see another team serve Randy Stoklos. That's how good a hitter he was. And what makes it even more impressive is he is a great setter. So, I mean, they're serving his partner and his partner is bound to get great sets, but they're not serving Randy. Randy was strong as hell. I mean, he was a big boy. He could get up there and he had a really, really taut arm and he could he just, he could really hit it hard. He didn't, he didn't hit it so much usually down, but he hit it really hard and really sharply. And he was, he was awesome. He really was. And, and after he stopped playing on tour, you know, you, you'd see him play maybe down at the Manhattan Six Man when he was in his 40s, maybe his late 40s. He was still bringing it. The guy still could hit the heck out of the ball. Then the last guy was Dalhauser. Dalhauser, I don't think there's ever been anybody that uh, was his height that could jump as high as he did, and um, you know still could hit the ball with with a good arm swing and hit the ball as sharply as he did. I don't think anybody's ever do it quite like he does. The difference between him and the other guys is Dalhauser never gets served for one thing, but the other thing is. You know, there's always a block up. You, you don't really get to see him really bounce the ball, so it's it's hard to uh, give him his due. You know, if, if he if he was playing on a beach where nobody was blocking, you know, he very well might go to the beginning or the top of this list. He was he was pretty phenomenal. All right, we covered the five most impressive hitters. Now let's uh, move on to defensive players and diggers. Who would uh, make that list? All right, so I already talked about Mingus and how he could dig the ball with his hands and, you know, how he could control his digs. I remember once we were kidding each other and he would, and I would say something, you know, I dug a lot of balls, and he'd go, yeah, but when I dig them, they're easy to, they're easy to set. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I laughed because it was true. <laughs> so... He was, he was a great he's a great digger. He's my number one guy. I, I just think he was a hell of a defensive player. I got Lang in there second, and, and we already talked about him. He could he could dig a lot of balls. He could dig the hard hard hit balls, and uh, uh, he was he was known in his day as maybe the best digger in, in the game. And I, I got Sinjin at number three. Sinjin early in his career really I don't think was a great defensive player, but you know, the longer he played, the better he got. And by the time uh, when he started playing with Randy, he got playing behind Randy's block and so forth. He got really good, and he, he got he really moved around really well back there. And he made a lot of very athletic moves, diving to pick to dig balls and so forth. He he became a really good digger and uh, dug a lot of balls. So he's my number three guy. 
I got Rogers at number four. He was a little bit like Sinjin, could, could make some diving play to stick his arms out, could uh, dig some unusual plays, some hard balls that, that were did to dig, and he could really dig them. He was he dug a lot of balls. And then I got Dodd, number five. And Dodd behind Whitmarsh dug a lot of balls. And then he could put them away because, you know, Dodd was almost 6'5", so he was pretty effective. Those are my guys. Were you watching in that final when he did that in Seal Beach to come back and beat Karch and uh, Kent? What year I, What year was that, like 95, 90, or probably 94? I'm sure 95. I was there. I'm sure I was there. Yeah. I didn't miss too many tournaments. I did it for 30 years and did almost all of them. Yeah, that was that was one. Then he did the windmill, and then walk went around the like shades of Hale Irwin all the way around the court, uh, uh, hand slapping everyone. That was one of my favorite tournaments to watch when he when he just would take it to the next level and dig balls like that, and then hit put side out or get a point off transition. He was uh, he was he was something else too. I believe it. It was always fun to see somebody really start digging balls I mean really take over a match and, and by digging balls I remember in uh, Colorado I remember Sinjin did it one year where he just all of a sudden started digging everything and I remember another year where Dodd did it and he started digging everything they were just you know it, they, they couldn't have played any better it was just it, it, it was idle you know how well the two of them were digging in these two separate tournaments alright we covered the five most impressive hitters five best diggers you saw a lot of great teams over your career, both playing and then as the tournament director. Who would the three best teams of all eras be, in your opinion, if you had to single them out? I think Stephens and, and Karch were a hell of a team. That was one of the great teams. I, I, I guess I'd put them in the top three. Put Sinjin Randy in the top three. And I would probably put Von Hagen and Bergman. I mean Von Hagen, I'm sorry, Von Hagen and Lang in the top three. Those are those are three pretty damn good teams. They changed the rules, I think was it two thousand two thousand one or two thousand and two to the short court and rally scoring map? What are your thoughts, um, or were your thoughts when things changed and how it affected the sport? You know, I, I, being a tournament director at the time, you know, I could see the pluses, obviously. Um, you know, when they changed the rules, you know, they wanted to create more activity in the court, more rest, so they, they cut down the size of the court. They wanted to make the game seem more interesting longer, so they changed the scoring system. And you know, it, it just and it controlled the time of the it controlled the time of the matches with the uh, with the scoring system too. So those were good things. I mean, from the standpoint of what they thought was necessary for the health of the game and uh, for TV and that kind of stuff, these were things I think that were pretty well thought out and I think the changes have actually worked out pretty well um, on the other hand you, you kind of lose some of the stuff you used to have which that's what happens when you make rule changes specifically you lose the, the 
chance for teams to make great comebacks, and, and you lose a little of the in in match drama of, of or in game drama of, of the swings of uh, what's going on in the match, and you lose the, the appreciation of teams that are sighting out for long periods of time and we're just playing the game. So, but you know, I get why they did it, and uh, I, I, I from a standpoint of having been a tournament director, I see the necessity of it. You know, it's really hard to control the length of a tournament when you're playing side-out volleyball. It's, it, these, these matches can go on, particularly when the players have gotten better. Some of these matches go on forever. In the, like in the early 80s, there was, there was matches that went really a long time. And they're so long they got boring. What happened was, with the big court and everybody blocking, a lot of players, they just stopped hitting the ball. There was enough room behind the block where everybody would just take a good look. They would say, okay, the guy's playing the cut, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot the ball deep. The guy's playing deep, I'm going to cut the ball. And some people would just go whole matches and just shoot the ball. It really was not very entertaining. It's not like the old days when people get up there and beat ball the ball and people were digging the hardest balls on the beach. So looking at it that way, I think the, the rule changes were probably, probably a good idea. This concludes part two of our interview with Matt Gage. Thanks so much for tuning in. As a reminder, we have a website, which is godstoghosts.com, which is dedicated to commemorating the history of the sport of volleyball. Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for part three. <laughs>